Amen. We are uh, just a couple weeks away from wrapping up our sermon series studying through the book of Hebrews. The series is called Jesus First, because the book of Hebrews, if you were going to pick one word that kind of summarizes one of the key themes, I think that one word would be better. The book of Hebrews makes the argument that Jesus is better, greater than anything and everything else will ever come across in our lives. And if Jesus truly is better, then the whole thing is an invitation to put him first in our lives. In just a minute, um, we're going to read and we're going to be studying together chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. If you want to go find it now, we'll get there in in a bit. And then we're going to spend two weeks, the next two weeks, in chapter 13. And then, just as a heads up, on uh, Sunday, May 28th, that will be our first time since the fall, if, if you don't recall. We actually preached through Hebrews once in the fall, looking at all the exhortations. And then we went through a second time this winter and spring. May 28th will be the first time since the fall that we're not preaching from the book of Hebrews. So either you can be sad and grieve the end of this amazing series, or you can be happy that we're just moving on to whatever's next. Um, but do mark your calendars the 28th. Remember, single worship gathering that Sunday at 10 o'clock a.m., followed by lunch on the lawn after that worship gathering. So we're starting our summer schedule, and we just have one 10 a.m. worship gathering. That'll start on May 28th. There we go. Calendar stuff out of the way. Check that box. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, what I want to preach on today is what I want to talk to you about relationships. Something that is part of, central, significant in just about every stage of life and and every area of our lives is we have relationships. As I was writing this sermon, I was was reminded of a relationship that I don't think about often. Um, It was a man who was a manager of mine when I was a waiter at a restaurant in Tucson, Arizona. I'd moved to Tucson after college in order to goof off with my buddy. And and my level of commitment and quality as a waiter was was pretty similar to kind of where I was at in life. I probably goofed off more than my manager would have liked me to. And, And I never really knew what my relationship was like with this man. I can't for the life of me remember his name, but I can picture his face so clearly in my mind. It was always deadpan. I just, I never knew what this guy was thinking. Maybe he was thinking, Carl, you have great conversations with the customers. They really appreciate you and and you connect with them. Maybe he liked me. Maybe deep down he believed I would be a great waiter someday. Or maybe he thought to himself, Carl, if you don't put in the food order after you take it, the kitchen doesn't cook it and you can't deliver it, and we lose customers. Maybe he was furious with me every moment, and he couldn't believe how terrible I was. But I didn't know, because every time I looked at him, just a deadpan face, nothing. Have you ever had a relationship where you just don't know where you stand with that other person? I mean, obviously, it'd be, it's nice to have relationships that you know You have a good, healthy, solid relationship. Obviously, that's preferable. But I would actually take 
knowing that I have a bad, broken relationship, I would prefer that over, I've got no idea what's going on between you and me right now. It's so unsettling. It's so uncomfortable. It causes me to stumble around. Not surprisingly, I didn't work at that restaurant for very long because I just couldn't handle not having any clue what my manager really thought of me. Have you ever had a relationship like that? Relationships are significant, and I wonder if you would think with me for a minute about this question. Considering how important, how significant relationships are are on our lives and how the nature of our relationships impacts so much of of how we feel and, and how we conduct ourselves in different aspects of our life, I wonder if you would consider, where do you stand in your relationship with God? Are you able to say, I happen to know for a fact that I've got a solid, healthy, strong relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus? Or would you say, you know what? I I don't have a good relationship. I'm, I'm mad at God. I think God might be mad at me. Or are you like me and my manager? You're like, well, I don't know. I show up at church. I I read some Bible stuff, but if I'm honest, I really don't know what my relationship with God is like. Here's my hope. My hope is that in the next few minutes, we would all spend some time seriously asking ourselves, what is the nature of my relationship with my God? Now, Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 29, doesn't directly talk about this question. Rather, what it talks about is it gives two different examples of types of worship, ways that people might worship their God. But I bring up relationship first because I believe that the nature of our relationship with God determines and is expressed by the nature of our worship of God. The more uncertain or afraid or unconfident we are in our relationship with God, the more timid or inauthentic or conserved or reserved our worship will be. The more true and honest and secure our relationship with God, the more free and full and vulnerable our worship can be. And I want us to experience the kind of worship as a church, which I know we have and I know we do, but I want to make sure it continues, that is characterized by people who are in a life-giving relationship with their maker and their savior. So that's where we're going. Um, Flip to your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to read that section together. Um, It's going to give us a picture of two different mountains. The first one, uh, an image of Mount Sinai, where God met with his people and gave them the law in the book of Exodus. You can read that story. The second one, Mount Zion, which is meant to be a contrast and an image of people who worship God because of their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. That sight was so terrifying that Moses said, 
I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In the NIV, and maybe in a bunch of your Bibles as well, this section of Scripture is titled, The Mountain of Fear and the Mountain of Joy. And what I saw when I read these two comparisons is, I saw two different ways that humans could be, could think about and experience a relationship with God. And I think the warning that is a pretty harsh, kind of, kind of serious warning, which the author of Hebrews gives a few of in the book, I think the warning is there because these are not two equal options. These are not two options that are like, well, pick either one and it'll probably be fine. Rather, these are two options that could not have more significant and different outcomes in our lives. So here's what we're going to do. I want to spend a few minutes thinking about what does it look like to have a fear-based relationship with God? And then I want to consider what does it look like to have a joy-based relationship with God? And after we consider that, I'm going to ask us again to consider what kind of a relationship do I think I have with God? And then we're going to land the plane by saying, therefore, what does worship look like in my life? So, Fear-based relationship. Turns out, you don't have to look very far at ancient religions or at modern religious practice to find fear-based examples of people who have relationships with God and of whole religions organized around relationships with God. Um, one of my favorite examples comes from the Old Testament, and it, it describes the worshipers of an Old Testament deity named Baal. Or Baal, B-A-A-L, however you're supposed to pronounce that. Um, and the story goes in 1 Kings chapter 18 that the prophet Elijah 
decided to have a bit of a throwdown with 450 prophets of the god Baal. I like to think of it kind of like a modern-day rap battle. Like everybody was around, they're in the room, and they're both just throwing down lines at one another. And this rap battle wasn't just about who was the better rapper, but it was about whose god was the more powerful god. And it turns out that that type of battle was very common in Old Testament times. This is what gods did. They demonstrated their power and said, whose god is more powerful? Whoever's god is more powerful, well, we'll go worship that god. So there were some things going on in the country that led to this. And if you want the whole story, you can go read the book of 1 Kings. It's great. It's right there in the Bible, a little further to the left than the book of Hebrews. Just go home, read 1 Kings. Such a good story. Tells you about this guy, Elijah, the prototype rapper, I think. You're going to get some of his sweet lyrics in a bit. But so here's what Elijah does. He, he, he goes up on, on, on uh, the top of a mountain, and he says, all right, you 450 prophets, here's what we're going to do. You guys build an altar. Kill a bull, put it on the altar, and then I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to kill a bull. I'm going I'm to put it on the altar, and we're going to take turns. You can go first. All you got to do is pray to God, and if your God can light the altar on fire, clearly we should worship your God. And then afterwards, I'm going to do the same thing. And whoever's God provides the fire, no matches allowed. Whoever's God provides the fire, they're the winner. So the prophets of Baal go ahead. They, they build their altar. They get their sacrifice. Um, and they start praying and asking their God to, to light the fire. And here's what happens in the story. They took the bull given to them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, (laughs) this is just straight from the Bible, people. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god, perhaps He is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. At which point the whole audience goes, oh, slam, right? So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with spears and swords, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Turns out you can actually find lots of examples elsewhere in the Old Testament, lots of examples from across ancient and modern religious practice, of people's relationships with God that look like this. That that look like, man, every time I pray or speak, I don't know if God's listening or answering, and I don't know how to get God's attention, so I'm going to do crazy stuff. I'm going to even do stuff that's hurtful to me to try and somehow desperately get the attention of this God that I don't even know who or what they are. There was another ancient religion in the Old Testament that worshipped a God named Molech, that apparently demanded human sacrifice, sometimes even child sacrifice, one of the most horrific practices from around the ancient world. 
You can see it in other nations too. The Greek pantheon was filled with gods who were so petty and selfish and jealous that they would harm humans just for their own silly purposes. There's a story about three Greek goddesses who got in an argument with one another about who was the most beautiful. And they couldn't figure it out, so they brought some humans in to sort of cast a vote. And not only did they bring the humans in, but they started bribing the humans just so that the humans would vote for them to be the most beautiful. That was actually, according to the Iliad Odyssey, the beginning of the Trojan War, which in that story cost countless lives, but the goddesses apparently didn't care what the cost to the humans were. They only cared about themselves. We see plenty of religious practices in the world today. Heck, there's even forms of Christianity in the world that have been twisted and perverted to make a fear-based relationship with God the foundation of religious practice. It was common then. It's common now. And when fear is the basis of your relationship, you can't help but be frantic in your worship. Frantic, which has this sense of anxiety and dis-ease and uncertainty about what's really going to work or whether anything I do or say is really going to matter. But even back in 1 Kings, we see a glimpse that this fear-based type of worship, this fear-based relationship with God, is not how Yahweh wants things to be. So the prophets of Baal, they dance, they slash themselves, and nothing happens. But Elijah says, all right, all right, you guys had your turn, now it's my turn. He builds his altar, he puts the bull on it, but he's like, here's the thing. No match, that's too easy. Here's what I want you to do. Dig a trench around my altar, big one, make it deep. And I want you to bring barrels of water. And three times, I want you to pour huge barrels of water so that the animal is soaking wet, the wood is soaking wet, the ground is soaking wet, and there's a trench filled with water around my altar. All right? All right, Elijah, but we're, we're in the desert right now. It's going to be some work to get some water. I don't care. Take your time. So they get it. He drenches the altar. And here's what happens next. At the time of that sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed in a rather simple way. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me, so that these people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Oh, I love that story. It's interesting. So we get this contrast. What does a fear-based relationship with God look like? Okay, it, it looks terrible. And we see in Elijah this image of something much more settled and secure. But we go back to the book of Hebrews now and we go, but wait a minute, wait a minute. At Sinai, 
It says that Moses trembled with fear at the presence of God. It, it basically, the author of Hebrews basically gives Mount Sinai and the giving of the law as an example of a fear-based relationship. Why is that? Okay, I've got a couple thoughts on that. First of all, all of Scripture is written first to the people in the culture, in the language of that time. So when the book of Exodus was written, it was written to a group of people who would have assumed a fear-filled relationship with God. That would have been the part of the story that everybody reading it would have been like, oh, yeah, 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 totally, yep, I get it. Like thunder, lightning from the mountain, freaking out, everybody's scared. Yeah, cool, yeah, my, my God does that too, yep, I get it. So that would have been the culturally normal assumed part of the story. That would have been the thing that if it wasn't there, people reading it would have been like, huh, this is really weird. We read that part of the story and we go, huh, this is really weird. They go, yep, cool, what's for lunch, right? However, whereas that was the normal assumed backdrop to the story, God also does some things that were never before heard of in terms of ancient religious practice, and I think are still incredible in our understanding of God. The first thing God does is he defines with absolute clarity the nature of his expectations for the people and what the people can expect of him. Author Brene Brown has said this in a rather nice way. In any and every relationship you're in, clarity is kindness. If I know what to expect of you and you know what to expect of me, that is a secure foundation for a healthy relationship. And God is giving clarity to his people. The prophets of Baal, they had no clarity. They had no idea. They were frantic. But God gave the gift of clarity. And second, God didn't just give the gift of clarity saying, here's what I expect of you. God didn't just ask Israel to be faithful to him. God also pledged his faithfulness to them. You could not get a greater contrast between normal religious practice and what Yahweh was doing than a God who was willing to pledge his faithfulness to the people. Gods don't pledge faithfulness to people. Gods do whatever they want. They argue about who's most beautiful, and they take a nap when they want, and who cares about the humans? But at Sinai, we meet a God who says, I will always be your God. In fact, that concept gets echoed over and over and over through the rest of the Old Testament writings. Here's just one example from the prophet Jeremiah, who was speaking to Israel at a time when they had forgotten God's faithfulness to them, and they had turned away from their faithfulness to God. And so the prophet Jeremiah writes some words of God, and God says, Israel, remember, remember, when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I also gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. God promises to his people that he will be with them and he will be their God. It was, I believe, the beginning, 
the, the first seed planted of what will be completed in Christ, which is now a joy-based relationship with God. Okay, so to summarize, two types of relationship, one based on fear, one based on joy. Fear was the default posture of worship for ancient religions. People were all too familiar with gods who did what they wanted, when they wanted, with no regard for human well-being. But at Sinai, God began something entirely different. And what God began at Sinai, he completed in Christ and invites us to be people who have a relationship with God and worship God based not in any fear or uncertainty or frantic types of worship, but rather based in the joy given to us in Christ. Now, there's so many ways we could talk about that. The author of Hebrews gives us a dense little paragraph with just example after example after example. He says this joy-based relationship happens not at Mount Sinai, but at Mount Zion, which is the new Jerusalem. And he gives a few characteristics, and I want to briefly look at four of the things the author of Hebrews says. First of all, the author names joy. It says thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And the implication is that joyful assembly is what we are invited into. We just celebrated some graduates, right? And probably a lot of us are going to go to grad parties. And you know that moment when you're walking up to a, to a grad party or any party, and there's sort of a buzz in the crowd, there's a lot of energy, there's some music playing, there's food, there's drink, and somebody you know sees you, and their face lights up, and they go, oh, I'm so glad you could come. And they run up, and they give you a hug. That's the biblical image of joy, when somebody's face lights up when they see you. And God invites you into a relationship where you can know every time you turn towards him, his face lights up to see you. And that's the kind of assembly he wants you to be part of. Second, the author says, this new joy-based relationship is one where the spirits of the righteous are made perfect. The righteous here is anybody trying to faithfully follow Jesus with their life. Anybody who has received the free gift of God through the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection, that is a righteous person. We talked about this a lot last week, but what is God trying to do in and for everyone who's a Jesus follower? God's trying to make us perfect. He has got a training plan for us to strengthen us and grow us into the person he designed and desires for us to be. I was looking at some um, pictures online of people who um, do the kind of long, often painstaking, detailed work of restoring damaged artwork. And I found all sorts of awesome examples from some famous paintings that I've heard of, but the image that I liked most was a, a painting I'd never heard of and an artist I'd never heard of, whose name I didn't remember, so I can't even tell you. <laughs> but the before picture, you can see that the, the canvas has been crinkled and bent. You can see that the coloring has sort of been ruined or, 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 or just like it's unclear. And, and you look at the image and you kind of go, I, I could make some guesses about what that might be, but I'm not totally sure. I think that's a good way to think about our lives. When God made us, 
Scripture tells us that he made humans, and this is true of every human. He looked at us and he said, it is good. And one of the ways Scripture talks about that is God stamped us with his own image. What greater evidence of good is there than that God made us in his image? But sin entered the world and caused that goodness of God's image to be distorted to be fractured, to be cracked, so that even when I look at humans who I know are made in the image of God, and I know there's some beautiful work of art in there too often, I just can't see it. But what God is doing is he's in the business of carefully restoring us to how he first designed us to be, so that suddenly, eventually, we can see the work of art that God first painted into each and every one of us. That is a relationship of joy, knowing that whatever God does in our lives, it is for our good. And how do we know that? Because this is Jesus giving us a new covenant. God's day of making covenants with a nation, God's day of making a covenant based on a law, that's gone. God has now made a covenant finally once for all that is with all people, And it is based not at all on who we are or what we do. It is based not on all on whether we deserve or earn God's goodness, but it's based entirely on what God has done for us and the work of Christ giving us a free gift of life. That is the good news that gives us great joy. And that's what the final image is as well. A sprinkled bud that speaks a better word. The author of Hebrews used that word sprinkle to talk about the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be made year after year after year, constantly atoning for our sins. But the sacrifice of Christ happened once for all, meaning for all people of all time and meaning for any and every sin we could ever commit, meaning if we ever doubt or wonder or are worried or are fearful about what our relationship with God is, we need to look no further than the victory of Christ over the grave. And be sure that that is how our God sees us. That is why his face lights up every time we come to him. Which brings me back to the opening question. What about you? Where do you stand in your relationship with God? Are you living in some of this fear, in some of this, I just don't know? Are you living in, maybe my doubts are too great? Are you living in, maybe my failures are too great? Or are you living day to day in the knowledge that it has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what Christ has done for me and what Christ is doing in me? All I need to do is put my faith in Him. So what does that look like? If I can live day-to-day in that joy-based relationship with God, what's that really going to look like? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us. They say, we've seen the contrast. We've we've heard the warning. The fear-based is terrible. Don't do that. Receive the gift of God and know his joy. How do we do that? Here's how. Therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, because what Christ has done cannot be shaken in any way ever by anything you do, by anything anybody else does, the work of Christ cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be thankful. 
and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God is working on burning up everything broken and hindering in our lives so that what remains is only that perfect image of who he made us to be. So how do we live out of this joy-based relationship? First, make thankfulness a daily habit in your life. Thankfulness is the mark of a joy-filled relationship. When life is good, be overwhelmingly filled with thankfulness to God for his goodness. When life is hard, be overwhelmingly filled with thankfulness to God for his goodness. Make our thankfulness based not at all on what we're experiencing in life, but only and always on what he has done for us in our lives. And when that is the case, then we worship. One of my favorite authors on the topic of worship is um, Pastor Eugene Peterson. And he spoke in many of his books and in many of his sermons about the significance of worship. And I found a quote that just really struck me in which he talked about how too often we take this great, glorious, beautiful thing called the worship of God and we cheapen it. We give our worship to all sorts of unworthy things. If we've received the gift of a joy-based relationship with God, then we worship. Here's Pastor Peterson's words on the topic. We abandon the awesome silence of worship and we fill the air with third-rate jingles. We get tired of participating in the strenuous but invigorating life of freedom and faith, and we regress to the old slave religion that reduces God to a decoration or an amulet. And God's angry. It matters to God when we forsake these great gifts of a living faith and embrace instead an infantile superstition. It matters to God when, in stupidity or sloth, we degrade and diminish our lives by worshiping something that is beneath us. At the very moment, God is provided the means of exalting and enhancing our lives by showing us how to live in his holy love. We live this joy-filled relationship with thankfulness. We live it with worship. And then the author of the Hebrews describes this worship as characterized by reverence and awe. And people, this is where my week just got really thrown off because I thought to myself, all right, mountain of fear, mountain of joy. It's not about fear, it's about joy. I said, I wonder what reverence and awe mean. So I, I did my work, I do the word study. And I'm thinking they must mean something different than fear, right? That's what they've got to mean. <sighs> so first of all, reverence and awe are a couplet. They're two different words to make one point. The second word, awe, is most commonly translated as terror or dread. And I was like, God, I already wrote the sermon. What am I supposed to do? I got to leave this word out. But I dug a little deeper. And like so many words, a single word in English, fear, can have a massive semantic range. A single word can be used to capture a, a whole realm of different experiences and expressions and what we get here is a contrast 
not between fear or no fear, but between two different kinds of fear. There's a fear based in uncertainty. What's my relationship with you, God? Who are you? What are you going to do? There's a fear based in uncertainty whose terror is debilitating and breaks you. But there's another kind of fear based in confident, secure relationship that though it is a bit terrifying, you know something good is in your future. If the author of Hebrews got two words, then I can take four really quick illustrations to try and capture what is this fear of God based in joy. There was a bridge over the Mississippi River not far from where I lived, and me and my buddies used to bike out to it and jump off it. And I remember, we were safe. We swam in the water. We make sure there's no logs. We knew it was deep enough. We were safe. But I remember every time I jumped, no matter how many hundreds of times, there was this moment right before my feet left where <laughs> it was a fear of excitement and anticipation of the exhilaration. It was fear because it could go wrong, but it was a fear that I was excited about. I remember thinking in the days before my wedding about how I was going to pledge my life to someone. Up to that point, I hadn't done anything for more than four years at a time, right? Elementary school, few years, middle school, high school, four years, college, four years, and now I'm going to pledge my life. I didn't know at that time how many years I had left, but I was pretty sure it was going to be more than four. <laughs> and as certain as I was that I was pledging my life to the right woman, there was a little bit of terror at the significance of the commitment I was about to make. When my oldest son was born, we were in the hospital for about five days afterwards. There were some complications, and, you know, we had an army of nurses helping us all day, every day, and five days later, the nurse comes in one day holding my, my baby boy and hands him to me and says, all right, discharge paper's done. You guys can go home. I was like, you're coming with me, aren't you? Like, why in the world would you trust me to do this on my own? I was overwhelmingly filled with joy at being a parent, and I was simultaneously terrified because of the significance of this journey I had just embarked on. I remember sitting on the Mississippi River. We had a screened-in porch in the back of my house, and northern Minnesota has the greatest thunderstorms you've ever known. And I remember sitting on the porch, and I loved watching thunderstorms roll in down the Mississippi and seeing the flashes of lightning and not just hearing but feeling the thunder shaking my chest and shaking the house around me. Turns out that image, an image of terror at something powerful but wonder and awesomeness, that's a biblical image for what worship looks like when we are secure in our relationship with God. I'm going to have the worship team come up and we're going to sing a song that's based in some imagery from the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation describes in some bizarre language. And I'll be honest, I left out some of the really bizarre stuff because sometimes it can be distracting. But if you want to talk to me about the bizarre like eyeballs all over the wings of these angels, we can talk about that. But that's a point for later. But the book of Revelation describes a heavenly throne room 
where God himself is seated on the throne and the whole universe bows down in worship to him. Listen to these words from Revelation, and I invite you to then prepare yourself to worship your creator and your savior. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne, there were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. God, I pray as we sing these words, as we reflect on our relationship with you, God, may we worship you with the joy, with the awe, with the reverence, with the wonder of people who cannot believe just how good your grace is and the gift of life you have given us. And God, whatever worries or doubts or fears plague our lives, may we know that when we come to you, your face lights up with joy to see us. Amen.